Welcome to Honorable Mentions, the official podcast of the Shackles Honors College. My name is Wade Leonard, and I'm the outreach coordinator here at the Honors College. Dr. John Bickle is a member of the Shackles Honors College faculty and a professor of philosophy at Mississippi State University. He is also an affiliate faculty member in the Department of Neurobiology and Anatomical Sciences at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. His academic focus is upon the philosophy of neuroscience. He's the author of four academic books, 100 articles and chapters in philosophy and neuroscientific journals, and he's edited the Oxford Handbook of Philosophy and Neuroscience. He is also the co-editor and co-contributor to the upcoming book, The Tools of Neuroscience, Philosophical and Scientific Perspectives, which he put together along with his colleagues, Carl Craver and Ann Sophie Barwich. Dr. Bickle, thank you so much for being here today, sir. Well, it's great to be here, Wade. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about some of these things in our new book and other things of interest. The first thing I want to I want to talk about is, is I don't think a lot of people really think of science and philosophy necessarily necessarily playing well together right can you can you kind of explain to me what it is we mean by neuroscience and what the philosophy of neuroscience is for, for the the lay folks out you there? bet you bet no 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 it uh, it takes a lot of people by surprise um so uh neuroscience is the scientific study of the brain and the central nervous system all the way down from the level of just basic physics through the basic chemistry through the basic cellular physiology all the way up to circuits and systems and behavior um, now why in the world would someone who's interested who's whose background in is in philosophy have gotten interested in neuroscience that was well, my question yes exactly now that story goes back uh, about 30 years now um, there really was no philosophy of neuroscience or neurophilosophy. Um, I mean, a handful of philosophers kind of dabbled in neuroscience just because they were interested in mind, they were interested in consciousness, and there had been kind of a by and large move toward explaining these kind of uh, phenomena uh, uh, physically. And so philosophers in the 60s and 70s kind of dabbled a little bit here and there in neuroscience. But the real turning point came with Patricia Churchland's publication in 1986 of her book, Neurophilosophy, which basically got an entire field started, me included. Um, so um, those of us who uh, do this kind of work nowadays generally, like me, have backgrounds at the undergraduate and graduate level, both in the neurosciences and in philosophy, usually in philosophy of science, sometimes more in philosophy of mind in those kinds of areas. So that's really where this whole program got started. It's really only a product of about 35 years. So is it inherently a, a materialistic kind of philo philosophical approach like logical positivism? I it certainly follows in that in, in that in that trend, um, and uh, so it's uh, it, 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 most people who work in philosophy of neuroscience uh, have some, or, or at least convinced to some degree that our minds, our conscious minds, our cognition is physical in nature. Um, they may not agree entirely with that kind of claim, but they obviously are going to think that there's something to do with our, our minds have something to do with our brains if you're going to spend the time learning in great detail all as much as we know about brains now hoping that you're going to find some kind of explanation of cognition in mind 
So there's an empirical side to it. Yes, clearly. This is clearly, and that's what I think attracts a lot of people in philosophy of science who are really less interested in the ultimate nature of mind, um, but are really more interested in questions like, why in the world does science work so well in providing explanations or providing predictions of the world? What is it about the scientific approach that gives us the capacity to explain and predict um, what's so special about addressing a problem scientifically as opposed to other methodologies. And so those are the kinds of people now who have turned to neuroscience, mainly because neuroscience is such a stunningly successful science from the late 20th century early into the early 21st century. You know, that's interesting because I guess that, that in a way sort of leads to explaining my earlier question in that a, a pure scientist is interested in how something works but doesn't necessarily care why it works. And You'd be surprised. Uh, the, the really first race, general, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 look, look, look. No, that's certainly the case because in their day-to-day activities, Scientists are trying to find mechanisms. They're trying to find explanations. They've got a particular kind of phenomena. They feel like they've got a grip uh, experimentally on manipulating or intervening or at least displaying that phenomena. And they're trying to explain and predict uh, what, uh, what's, what's going to happen or what has happened. Um, so there's, there's definitely that aspect. That, that's just part in day-to-day science. But the really first-rate scientists out there, the ones that I've interacted with all my career, um, are also people who are just stunning, or who are just interested in science and why it works the way it works and why it works as well as it does. Um, so yeah, you have a lot of scientists who really couldn't care less about those kinds of philosophical questions. Right. But the really, the re, the the ones who have been really influential, like for example, my 2014 book with Alcino Silva, UCLA neurobiologist. Alcino is just absolutely, uh, uh, is just absolutely intrigued by science. And he has been since his graduate school days. And in terms of contributions to neuroscience, Alcino was the first person to bring gene targeting techniques into behavioral neuroscience when he was a postdoc in Sasuna Tonegawa's lab at MIT in the early 90s. Wow. So he is one of the he is one of the principal contributors of a of a of an approach as a methodology that is now everywhere in neuroscience. He's the one that brought it from developmental biology into into neurobiology, into behavioral neuroscience. And these are the kinds of people, these are the kinds of scientists who are interested in these questions as well. As you'll notice from our from our book volume, which we'll talk about a little bit, Alcino contributes a chapter, Astrid Prins from Emory contributes a chapter, David Parker from Cambridge, UK contributes a chapter, and neuroscientists are co-authors on a number of these chapters. That's why we titled it Philosophical and Scientific Reflections. It makes me think, this is probably a bad analogy, no. and I hesitate to use it, but the subject of the book, which seems to be about the instrumentation that's used to, to study the brain, what are the implications of that in and of itself? Yep. But it kind of makes me think about a quantum theory a little oh, bit yeah. in the fact that you see this stuff happening. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. uh, uh, uncertainty principle is a thing. Apparently, yeah. quantum entanglement is a thing. Yeah. But nobody has the first idea how it actually works. <laughs> 
And so the instruments themselves may be contributing to our misunderstanding oh, of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and in neuroscience, it's even, I think there's even a closer tie between, um, uh, between our, our accounts of what's going on and those tools. Because physicists, especially in quantum physics and some of the more deeply theoretical branches of physics, of course they depend on experiments. And those, of course, depend on really, really elaborate, really, really expensive technology. But in neuroscience, it's even a closer tie between what we know and the instruments that we have to manipulate and investigate the brain. Um, my contention, and this is controversial, not everybody agrees with this, but my contention is for every major advance that we have seen in neuroscience, you can tie that advance, that theoretical advance, directly to the impact of a new, at that, that time, new experimental research, experiment research tool. Um, now that's controversial. Many people don't agree with that, um, but, uh, but I have yet to encounter a case uh, that someone can give me where I can't find a then new research tool that was crucially important for that discovery, for, for, for that advance. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh -huh. I mean, without a microscope, you yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. to ask the question about germ theory. Without yeah, yeah. a telescope, you don't know to ask you know, why things are orbiting the way they're mm -hmm. orbiting. And so the tools are there. But I guess it could also be the thing that um, maybe you're seeing something that isn't there because you have the tool now to see it. Yep, huge issue. Um, and we really kind of raise this issue throughout these chapters in this volume. I mean, you know, one of the one of the things that we're concerned with in this volume is so so neuroscience is often criticized um, both from within science and outside of science of being quote unquote theory poor but data rich and that's supposed to be a criticism of it because while we've amassed this massive amounts of experimental data using all these new tools, we really still don't have a kind of guiding theory of how it is that brain produces mind. Um, and, and, and neuroscience has been criticized for that and one of the reasons people give for why neuroscience as opposed to physics, as opposed to chemistry, as opposed to evolutionary biology, as opposed to plate tectonics and geology. One of the reasons that criticism why neuroscience is so data rich with theory poor is because neuroscientists are so enamored and so intrigued by their fancy equipment. Now, that's probably not true, but there, there's a concern here. There's a concern especially that, that, that what we're seeing and hence what we are developing our theories of how the brain works on is being dictated by the tools we have at our disposal. And so one of the overarching themes in this volume that a number of contributors address is, is it the case that our account of how the brain works, this growing account, is it the case that this is a result simply of the tools that we have had at our disposal to manipulate and investigate brains? Well, it's, it's certainly unique because um, trying to create an objective map with yeah. something like consciousness that yeah. is, I mean, the literal definition of subjective experience, yep, yep, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. That's, that's tough. That seems no. tough. <laughs> yeah, no, no, look, um, uh, a number of philosophers have pointed that out, that, look, there's just something inherently problematic in 
using a scientific methodology, a third person methodology, an objective methodology to study what is in essence a subjective, uh, a subjective phenomena, that the two just don't match up. Thomas Nagel, a very, very influential philosopher in the late 20th century, drove that point home incessantly that there's just a mismatch between science and its methods and consciousness as a phenomenon. Now, those of us who think we're going to get a, a neuroscientific explanation of the subjective features of consciousness have to face that logical worry and it is a difficult one. Um, and, and some people just kind of paper it over. And, oh, well, you know, well, the methods of science eventually will reach it. Well, look, there's a, there's a logical problem here. And it's one that a number of people have come to recognize, especially as we learn more and more about what's going on in the brain when people are in any kind of animals are having conscious experiences so it's a it's a you, you raise a great issue it's one that anybody who is considering um what neuroscience can teach us about a subjective phenomenon like consciousness has to face head on and i can't remember where i read this but there's also the idea that consciousness itself from an evolutionary standpoint might not be a feature it might be a bug <laughs> yeah 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 i mean and, and, and that's always been a big a big issue i mean from from like what in the world is consciousness good for what does it can what what does it contribute to evolutionary success um uh couldn't it be the case many people have argued kind of you know speculatively uh, couldn't it be the case that um we could have all the basic molecular reactions and make up human body and yet be complete philosophical zombies with no consciousness whatsoever and wouldn't the world just kind of chug on <laughs> these are the kinds of issues that philosophers have raised and they become more pressing not less right as we learn more and more about what's going on in the brain and central nervous system when people have these kinds of experiences because through these physical examinations and through these tools that yeah. have been developed we now know the questions to ask which just leads to more questions to yes ask, right? yes you bet uh, both both empirical questions and these broader conceptual questions that uh, that that are always in the background no matter what you're no matter what kind of investigation you're doing into some kind of natural phenomenon well, i mean that's what that's what means that's what really makes neuroscience such an intriguing science from a philosophical perspective right because it's the study of our control systems it's the study of the particular organ that is driving our behavior uh not just some you know not 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 what's doing you know what's doing something to that other kind of object out there but us and that's what of course puts neuroscience into its own kind of philosophical light there's it tremendously intriguing problems about physics there's tremendously intriguing philosophical questions about chemistry and about evolutionary biology and the like but one of the nice things about neuroscience is these are the mechanisms that control human behavior uh, and presumably give rise to human cognition and consciousness. And that makes them all the more philosophically worthy of, of much attention. 
I'll, I'll try not to put you too much on the spot no, here, no. but you know, I noticed that your specialities in scientific reductionism, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. as I understand it, what that basically means is everything becomes physics at some point. <laughs> Do you think consciousness is ultimately a, a physical material thing or a, a just a, a result of physical material forces? I will, I will, I will, I will. I, will, I mean, I'm, 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 I take that as a working hypothesis. That's the that's the reason why why we I, I look to neuroscience when I'm concerned about trying to explain consciousness. But it has to be deemed a working hypothesis right now. Nothing more. Right? We do not have a physical explanation of consciousness. We've got a lot of really really interesting mechanisms that we can demonstrate show effects. That, in, that, that we can reasonably say are affecting conscious experience. I mean, we can manipulate and intervene into the activity of less than 100 nerve cells through cortical microstimulation in primates and get the monkey to swear that those dots are moving in one direction when in actuality they're moving in the other just by directly activating somewhere on the order of a directly 100 or so neurons electronically. Uh, those are intriguing results. Sure. Um, now, now but, but, but nevertheless, and so you, know, you find all these results, but of yours, we don't yet know why it is that the activation of those neurons, which activates that circuitry that they're part of, why in the world it looks like motion into the right as opposed to looking like the color purple, or opposed to looking sounding, you know, like we just these are the, the intriguing questions that are still out there, and they are the kinds of questions that we need both neuroscience and philosophical reflection and it, it, of to course, address. Because those also bring up hundreds of ethical and moral you, questions, you, yes. um, etc. But let's talk. Let's talk a little more specifically about the book. Yeah. Good. Um, your chapter, I believe, it's called "Tinkering in the Lab." Yeah, tinkering in the Lab. Tell me yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so one of the things that I've been really doing, and this comes from my my neuroscience background, um, there's a there's a picture of science that has been prominent in philosophy of science. You mentioned the logical positives earlier. There's a picture of science that has been prominent uh, within the philosophy of science since those days in the 1930s and the 1940s. And it is very much a theory-centric picture of science. It basically thinks that pretty much all of science is ultimately in the business of developing a theoretical account of that explains some particular phenomena, in this case, cognition or consciousness or what have you. Um, And what I learned very quickly when I took graduate seminars in neuroscience and became part of a neuroscience lab as a graduate student, what I learned very quickly was day-to-day neuroscience ain't like that. you, you know, so we would, we would have our weekly lab meeting when we'd read this, you know, this recent result from, you know, this, this really, really hot lab. And I would be all ready to start talking about what this is telling us theoretically about how the brain produces the mind. And all of my collaborators with neuroscience backgrounds, they were talking about the speed of the camera used to take that photograph. They were talking about how, you know, the phase of the, the electrode, what was the, what was the, what was the pattern of electrode, arguing, and, and it, it hit me quickly that day-to-day lab science is so far removed from theory 
And so what I started doing is I started investigating things like um, the development of these revolutionary research tools in the history of neuroscience. Alcino's bringing of gene targeting uh, from developmental biology into neurobiology. Um, this new technique called optogenetics, where you basically trick neurons to produce a light-sensitive protein that enables uh, ions to flow into the neuron and either activate it or shut it down simply by shining a light in the vicinity of those neurons. Um, uh, and then I started looking back at these historical cases. The development of the metal microelectrode, which basically made all of neurophysiology addressed toward vision possible in the late 1950s. And even more importantly, the patch clamp, which gave neurobiologists the ability to measure currents from individual ion channels, individual receptor proteins in the neuron. And when you look back at how the actual history of how those tools developed, theory was almost no part of their development. Of course, there was a background theory about what was going on. But in terms of the problems that enabled scientists to make those tools work and do what we now do with them, those were the solution to practical engineering, seat of the pants type problems, and they were solved not by applying theory. They were solved by just basically using trial and error reasoning, trial and error attempts to get that tool to work. And that's what my chapter lays out the history of the metal microelectrode and the patch clamp, how these were discovered, and they were very much discovered and perfected by a theoretical tinkering in the lab. And I try to generalize that point to more than just these two case studies, um, that, that quite a bit of the day-to-day -day activity of neuroscience has a lot less to do with theory than the overall picture of that philosophy of science has provided and the kind of common sense picture of science. Again, it makes absolute sense to me mm -hmm. because if you think about the history of yeah, philosophy yeah. and you think yeah. about what we called science, yeah. uh, Dr. Schneider's yeah. gonna get mad yeah, yeah. at me for saying no, sorry, this, yeah, yeah. but we lived under the, the, the shadow of Aristotle for hundreds of years <laughs> yeah. and the guy didn't know Thou what he was yeah. talking about, Thousands. right? Thousands. And I mean, it wasn't until the instruments themselves were developed that were practical engineering problems. I believe the person who invented the microscope, his name escapes, he was a lens grinder. Mm -hmm, right, exactly. Just kind of put yep. it together. Yeah. He wasn't a scientist. He wasn't a, 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 a scientist. No. He wasn't a, 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 a microbiologist that didn't even exist then. No, exactly. Um, but again, back to what I said earlier, it's it seems to be at some point you have to have the tools that let you ask the questions that you yep. didn't think about. So what I'm trying to get to is, in this sort of materialistic, empirical sense, how important is the theory anyway before you have the tool? Well, I mean, I mean, so it builds, it builds. Um, so for example, um, when Hodgkin and Huxley were doing their groundbreaking year and a half of laboratory work with their new tool, the voltage clamp, which enabled them to clamp the voltage of a membrane at a particular value, at a particular, at a particular value, and then they could manipulate the chemicals in the solution that was keeping that particular axon, that portion of the neuron alive. When they did their year and a half work, 
using that tool in the lab. Um, so they were they 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 were uh, they 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 ended up discovering that the rising portion of the action potential, basically the increase in membrane potential was directly the result of an influx of sodium into the into across the membrane into the cell positively charged ions and more interestingly the descent of the action potential back to resting potential was of the efflux of potassium and now no one knew anything Hodgkin and Huxley nobody knew anything about the mechanism they, they couldn't have possibly. It was another 25 years before the patch clamp was perfected, and you could get those kinds of measurements at that microscopic level, and then you could do X-ray crystallography on what was allowing those things through, and lo and behold, they were proteins that formed ion channels and proteins that formed receptors. I mean, none of that was even in the picture for right. those two. They speculated. They thought, well, maybe it's a gate. Maybe it's kind of gating mechanism. But again, that was no part of the day-to-day -day science. But the voltage clamp gave them the capacity to show these different phases of the action potential were directly the result of different, different, different influxes and effluxes of very, very specific ions. And it wasn't just a general breakdown of the membrane that had been thought before. And every step of the way, every step of the way, the new theory built on the old theory and the new tool but the old theory itself rested directly on what was then a new tool. And that history has been the history of neuroscience. Uh, as I say, I mean, this is controversial. A lot of people don't agree with this. But every case someone gives me of a new, deeply theoretical development in neuroscience, it doesn't take a whole lot of digging to find the new tool that was either developed for some experimental purpose, or but was uh, was brought over from another branch of science to use on neurons. I certainly find this interesting. I'm having a good time talking to you, but for the average person out there, why should they care? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, good. Well, no, look, that's a great question. Let me let me say something about that. Um, this is this is definitely a deeply a deeply philosophical, deeply scientific endeavor. There's no doubt about that. Uh, that's what that's our audience for this. But there's an important point here too that needs to be made, and that's this: scientific literacy is becoming really, really important. Um, we, we live in an age of science, and unfortunately, the scientists and the people that are involved in that and the general public are growing further and further apart. Um, and so one of the things that we think this kind of project does is it points out an intriguing feature about real science. And hopefully that feature is going to be intriguing enough for people to look at it, understand and say, boy, I want to learn more science. I want to learn more about how um, immunology works, to take a particularly sure. important example. I want to learn more about how you name it works. Um, and hopefully if you can get people to see just how interesting and how how curious these 
these, these episodes in science are. Hopefully you can intrigue them to learn more about science. If there was a chapter in the book that you could make required reading for everyone, <laughs> yeah. which one would that be? Wow, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, obviously, I like my, my chapter. <laughs> Your but, chapter, there but, you but, go. <laughs> but, 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 but no, there's others. Don't get me wrong. This is a, there's, some, there's some really good chapters. Valerie Hardcastle and her, um, her, her, uh, her relative, Matthew Stewart. Valerie is, uh, is a, was a professor of philosophy. She's now a vice president at Northern Kentucky University in the, medical, the new medical center there. And her, uh, her relative, Matthew Stewart, is a is a is a is a medical a medical researcher at Johns Hopkins. They've written a really intriguing chapter. They basically have looked at how people who were investigating this really really strange phenomena that happened in some advanced COVID cases, so-called brain fog. Right. Who started investigating this? Uh, they were not, they could not do normal autopsies of when these people died. So you could not go into the brain with your normal autopsy procedures because they involve things like aerosol sprays and stuff like. And you can't do that around a COVID death. Uh, so what they did was they took 19th century tools, things that were used in the 18th century to dissect brains. They uh, tinkered with them. And they began investigating the brains of these COVID cases that had died that had reported this brain fog. It had been clinically verified. And they found that for some odd reason, the brains of these people was produ were producing a macromolecule that's not normally produced in the brain. And that set off an entire how in the world... Is, is that macromolecule either crossing the blood-brain barrier or why in the world is it being produced by the genetic material in brains when it's normally not? And that's sort of a whole new investigation, not just into what COVID te what, what's going on with COVID, but what's going on with the blood-brain barrier. What's going on with changes in genetic, uh, changes in genetic expression in neurons? So that's a really intriguing chapter. And again, tinkering in the lab, as they point out. And, uh, and it was a result of them taking these Victorian tools yeah. and recrafting them? And that's recrafting crazy. them because you just could not use the standard sure. tools of modern autopsy because these were virus-laden brains. That's a case for vaccination if I ever heard one. Um, I tell you, I mean, so that chapter is really intriguing. Um, uh, uh, so, and then, and then also, I would also recommend people really look at Alcino Silva's chapter. Alcino um, has written a chapter on that. That that look. One of the reasons why tools become popular in neuroscience is because of their results. I mean, what their pro their their promise for manipulating and investigating brains, of course. But there's another reason why they do too. They've got to be usable, okay? It, it, it can't be the case that two or three labs alone turn out to be able to use these tools and nobody else does. And, and in addition, especially in these days of such competition for research funding, they've got to be affordable. And he talks about the development that his lab developed of what are called miniscopes. Basically, they're microscopes that can be attached to rodents. They use mice in his lab. And you can investigate microscopic events in the brain of these behaving rodents. And what's more, 
any lab with any kind of basic technological background can build these things on their own. Wow. So, I mean, those are the kinds of things that, I mean, I mean, there's, it's just, it's, those are the kinds of things uh, that, uh, that you find those kind, that kind of, that kind of, that kind of, uh, that kind of insight uh, throughout this book. You're a, Teacher, member of the faculty in the Honors yeah. College. Mm-hmm. What what classes do you teach, and what's a Dr. Bickle class like? I hope it's a lot like this. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it is. So basically, for the Honors College, I teach two classes. Um, every one, one one one. So every other every fall semester, I'll either teach one of two classes, and I teach them in rotation. So for example, this fall, I'm teaching my Honors three one six three seminar in nat- Honors seminar in Natural Science, Fundamental Discoveries in Neuroscience. This is where we talk about what you would read about in a neuroscience text. What would you learn? What would you the discoveries you would learn about in a neuroscience textbook? Um, but instead of using a textbook like is normally done, standardly done, we go back and read the original scientific publications that reported these results. So that gives me a chance to impress upon honor students, mostly you know science honor students how important experimental design is. Why in the world did these experimenters design the experiment the way they did? And it gives me a chance to emphasize the importance of the kinds of tools that were available at the time, the kinds of background theories that were available at the time. So you learn about the basic discoveries of neuroscience, the similar kind of ones you'd learn in a standard, uh, you know, upper level uh, undergraduate neuroscience text, but you do it by reading the original scientific publications. The other course I teach, which is on 3163 um, you know, Seminar Natural Science, Introduction to Neuroscience, is a more standard textbook-based introduction to neuroscience. But for that course, we use the, we use the, 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 the state-of-the-art textbook right now, uh, Dale Purvis and, 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 uh, and colleagues, um, Neuroscience, the sixth edition, which is not only a great textbook with regard to the, you know, the, the content, but it has the best set of animations and the best set of illustrations that I've, I've seen in a neuroscience textbook. So yeah, those are the two courses I teach for honors. I teach them every other fall semester. And, you know, ideally students would get an opportunity to take both um, to really solidify a neuroscience background. Um, but, uh, but of course, you know, sometimes schedules being. I got you. I got you. Dr. Bigel, I'd like you to make a pitch to me for philosophy majors in general. Yes, please. I'd love to. Um, let me say that. Let me say this. Um, uh, no matter what your academic interests are, no matter what they are, your academic interests will be will be will be increased. Your academic interest and your academic background will be increased by studying philosophy. It is the quintessential academic discipline. Why? Because it has a virtually open-ended methodology with one exception. Everything comes back to the reasons you can give in favor of the truth of your conclusion. That is what, and that that might involve data, that might involve logical argument, that might involve conceptual analysis, conceptual clarification. All of those methods are open and you learn how to use them effectively in a philosophy class. And every single one of those methods is 
usable in any academic discipline. So, I mean, whether you're a philosophy major as a single major, or whether you're a philosophy major combined with a English literature major, a political science major, a biology major, a physics, you name it, a mathematics major, your academic acumen will be increased the more philosophy you study. And, and there's a reason for that, okay? Because studying philosophy and learning how the real geniuses at doing this kind of work have operated both contemporarily and historically <laughs> makes you smarter. It makes you academically smarter. You get better at it by doing it and reading about it and talking about it. And that will benefit you no matter what field of research, no matter what field of study you decide is your bailiwick. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's useful for whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. And since right now you're talking to, well, I hope anyway, the majority of the students who are in the Shackles Honors College and also lots of other people yep. from all over the world, two books, two, two philosophers. <laughs> if everybody had to read a couple of them, who, 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 I'm going to make <laughs> oh, you do boy, that. <laughs> well, of course, there you're going to be driven to the ones that, uh, that you're most, uh, that, that, that probably influenced you the most. Um, but in my, in my, in, in my introductory philosophy class, um, that I teach not to honor students, but just to the general MSU population, one of the things that I, one of the first things that people read in this, even though we tend to focus on more contemporary issues, one of the first things I have people read in this is Rene Descartes. I mean, uh, it's just in terms of a systematic thinker who was right there when the scientific revolution was beginning to happen. I mean, right in the middle of it and was, was one of the most incredibly systematic thinkers among all human beings, even if you wind up disagreeing with Descartes. That right, that's so reason, interesting to me because you, the ghost in the machine see, seems yeah, antithetical yeah, to everything. You see, but you just see the attempt to build knowledge up from what Descartes thought would be a secure foundation. And, and, and that, that kind of approach... I think is 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 just really intriguing, um, and then uh, then and then beyond that, um, well, I mean, I, I guess we're all going to put in a plug for our sort of favorite philosopher, but I wouldn't recommend people start with this. But you know, the the the, the Rudolf Carnap, a member of the Logical Positive, one of the most important thinkers of it, actually was one of the most was one of the most sophisticated thinkers among the positivists, and the cartoon sketch of what the positivists thought, positivist thought, was not Carnap's view. Carnap actually changed his view very quickly over about a six year period and on in to a, another period, which took on a very, what now would count as a kind of pragmatic approach. And so, I mean, so, so, uh, but, but the difficulty with Carnap though, is that he went to his grave thinking that knowledge is structured like first order logic, you know, vocabulary, grammar, proof right. rules and, and that's just his, his, his he, he never got past that um so uh, but but nevertheless again to to just kind of see the writings of a of a, of, of a truly systematic thinker 
I think is, 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 even if you're like me, that thinks that in the end, knowledge probably is not structured that way. Knowledge is probably much more pragmatic, much more free-flowing, uh, much more uh, a-theoretical. Nevertheless, to, to get the, the, the to, 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 to understand someone trying to do this systematic attempt to structure all of knowledge is just an eye-opening encounter and especially someone of the geniuses of Descartes and Carnap. Dr. Bickle, is there anything we didn't talk about that you think we need to cover? <laughs> oh, boy, we could, tell, we could, we could do this no, for a I long really, time. I really, no, I look, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I really hope that, um, that, uh, that people, um, people the, only, the takeaway I would have is whether you're a science student in the, in the, in the Honors College or whether you're not a science student, um, become scientifically literate. Now I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir with honors college students here, um, but uh, but but it's but in this day and age where we live now and where we are going to continue to live, um, uh, you 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 have to have a kind of basic scientific literacy. You don't have to be a specialist, but you got to be able to read the science. You should be able after you leave MSU to know what a messenger RNA vaccine is and how it works. Um, and, 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 and that's something, to, so you will not be misguided by, uh, by people that have a political agenda on either side trying to coerce you either explicitly or implicitly into doing something you may not want to do. Knowing science and knowing the, what we, you know, the, 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 the scientific perspective of the world gives you a kind of power over what has become a distressing political situation. And I can't emphasize it more. Uh, it, it, knowledge really is power. Um, it may not be power that gets you to Washington, D.C. or wherever, uh, Beijing, but it's power over people that want to coerce you into doing something that may not be what you want to do. Dr. Bickle, I feel like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I appreciate you talking to me. Folks, the name of the book is The Tools of Neuroscience, Philo Philosophical and Scientific Perspectives. Um, where can people get it if they're interested in grabbing uh, it? It, it, should be, it uh, Routledge is telling us that it's going to be out by the end of this year. I'm not so sure. That's pretty optimistic. But it should be available if the latest, early 2022, and any academic bookseller, of course, all the, all the standard uh, online booksellers, uh, you know, uh, all the ones, uh, Barnes & Noble, of course, um, uh, 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 Amazon, will all carry it. Um, and there will be an ebook available immediately with the publication of the hard copy. Routledge ha makes you wait 18 months before the paperback comes out, but they do publish an ebook, and the ebook will be available for somewhere on the order of about 40 bucks. Pre-order for Christmas presents. That's what I would do if <laughs> well, I were at you. least at least early 2022. Right, right. <laughs> um, to learn more about the Shackles Honors College, please visit honors.msstate.edu. That's honors.msstate.edu. I've been Wade Leonard. You've been listening to Honorable Mentions. Thank you again so much, Dr. Bickle, for sitting here and talking with me and putting up with my ignorance. Oh, no. And uh, hail state, everybody. Yeah.